and welcome to Everything Remade, a podcast that I hope is about growth as much as it is about music. I'm Sean Decker, and I'd like you to hear something. Prayer for the Dead by Groundwork, featuring my pal Brandon DeCement on vocals. Chances are, if you've heard Groundwork, you've heard this song, as it is just so iconic. If not, you're hearing it now, and you're welcome. Southern California, um, in the greater Los Angeles area. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, that was in the early seventies. I'm an old man now. Um, my family life and memories of childhood are a little bit foggy for early years, but I remember loving going to the beach and, uh, we didn't live close to it. Um, but we would take family trips there and, you know, doing all the things that kids enjoy, I think, in Southern California, like going to Disneyland every once in a while, which really stuck with me. And I'm still a freak for Disneyland now, all these years later. Um, I have a sister who's three years younger than I and my parents um, brought us up in the Catholic Church which definitely had an influence on my upbringing and how I see the world now, um, mostly from the perspective of seeing a lot of the harm that comes with organized religion and the indoctrination of young people into those ideologies early on. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> my parents were pretty shocked when I was 11 years old and said, you know, I don't, I don't subscribe to this. I don't believe in this. This doesn't make sense. There's a lot of problems. There's a lot of holes. Um, 
and I don't I don't really want to follow um, along any longer. And uh, they really <laughs> didn't didn't take very kindly to that uh, at first. Um, over time, uh, even they've kind of drifted away from that particular church anyhow um, and evolved in their beliefs. But that always stuck with me. Um, I spent a lot of time in those next few years as a preteen and into my teen years in high school kind of looking for um, maybe a belief system or something um, to fill the hole that was left after figuring out that that religious upbringing wasn't really right for me. Um, and in that search, um, I found a lot of new ideas, which was great. Uh, I loved to read as a kid, and that continues to this day. I started reading a lot of the um, religious texts from all over the world, lots of different faiths, to see if there was anything that might make more sense to me. And what I really learned during that process was um, that those systems um, of belief really weren't actually right for me and that I really hadn't lost anything, but what I'd gained was a, a new perspective. Um, I also stumbled across a lot of things that it seems go missing when folks find themselves sort of defecting, if you will, from their traditional religious upbringing, which was that as I leaned more into, I think, what would be considered, you know, progressive or, or liberal, you know, thoughts. And as I became more interested in bucking the traditional system and got into punk rock and hardcore and metal and hip hop as a young person, when all of those things were really bubbling with a ton of energy and excitement um, in the 80s, um, I also found that there were some interesting threads in some of the religions that actually were not so traditional and uh, were actually pretty radical. And that also stuck with me, uh, liberation theology ideas. And in my activism in later years, I found myself hand in hand with and shoulder to shoulder with people who had faith traditions and um, subscribed to certain ideologies that I certainly did not even ones that were, you know, the actual, you know, previous experience that I had as a, as a young person, but, um, but who had a much more developed idea of what that meant for them. And so, uh, for instance, uh, doing a lot of work in the eighties against the death penalty, um, here in Arizona, um, after we moved here, when I was around 13, um, I found myself uh, working with a lot of people who were faith-based and it challenged my notions that, you know, faith had, you know, nothing but negative things to bring to the, uh, to the equation and actually got me to think a little bit more holistically and see how people could utilize some of those ideas and thoughts and what was in their hearts and minds to, uh, to do some good. So that was an interesting part of my, my childhood and my upbringing, I think. Um, yeah. I think like one of the first things that I started realizing is like when you read into 
a bunch of religions and you start reading kind of like very similar stories like and and you and you're like this is just a lot of the same stories like told in different ways and um, absolutely yeah i don't know i i always i always you know I, i'm sure somebody by now can like sort of trace these stories like and say like which ones are the oldest ones you know but it's always like really interesting when you like especially christianity which is like not that old you know like all things considered and you're like um these stories like were told in other religions and other ideologies like like centuries before you know they were adapted for christianity and and you're just like are you really do you really think like this is you know do you really think like this is the be all end all like whether you want to believe in you know a like uh an almighty being or whatever like how can you really think that this thing which has you know basically it's just like it's the cliff notes versions of a lot of other you know theologies like how can you think this is the thing to hang you know the we're done sign on um of all things but you know i don't know um i i agree with you i, I think that that's a really good point and i <clears throat> it, it's funny because that that sort of sense of that folks have found the ultimate truth, you know, um, and that their particular, you know, God or their particular faith tradition is the one, you know, absolutely belies the historical fact that almost certainly something came before that. Yeah. And that and that what they were introduced to at whatever point in their life they were introduced to it um, was a version of something that came before it, which was a version of something that came before that and on and on. And, um, you know, and that actually that actually does a lot of damage, I think, to the, some of those stories and ideas that very clearly came about as a result of human beings trying to learn how to cohabitate and create community. Um, most of these stories are morality plays, right? Yeah, um, sure. And as you said, they're, you know, they're just told in different ways um, with focus on different aspects um, that are reflective of time, culture, you know, nationality, gender, all kinds of things. But uh, um, the damage that's done in, in that sort of like, um, that certitude that folks have, you know, that right. they've found that, that, that one true meaning, um, is a real bummer because as I said, um, I've also seen some of the real positives that people who do have strong faith and, and, and do have a sense of openness to other people's faiths and ideas, and especially to those who don't have those same, um, ideologies or, or have, you know, any particular faith at all. Um, it, you know, those folks tend to be f much easier for me to understand and, and gravitate toward and, and work with. And um, I never really saw the belief in a higher power as the ultimate problem with those things. Um, it doesn't really matter to me uh, whether folks, you know, subscribe to that notion or whether they've had that experience. Um, 
I, I don't know how I relate to what's going on in the world or in the universe that I don't really understand. So I try not to, um, you know, have that same certitude um, any more than I might have been asked to do so as a young Catholic kid. Um, uh, I don't necessarily do it as a rigid, dogmatic atheist either, um, because I, I again, I'm not sure that that belief is ultimately harmful in and of itself. It's the structures that have been built up around those beliefs um, to create control mechanisms, um, to divide people, um, to reinforce some of the um, uh, the divisions and the hierarchies um, that you know maintain. Uh, folks in positions of power and that prey upon marginalized individuals. Um, that's where I think we really get into trouble, which is of course why I found it fascinating and a little, a little disorienting at first that there were people who came from faith traditions that were absolutely trying to destroy those things within their mm. faith traditions and using sometimes the, the very, you know, words of their faith to, um, promote their, uh, you know, their mission, if you will, to say, create um, a more, you know, ecumenical way of people from various faith traditions interacting, but also just trying to bring some justice to the world. Um, that was that was a really interesting part of my, my upbringing, and how I developed some of my thought processes as a young person and it's always stuck with me it's it's funny it comes up early in this conversation because it's clearly played an important role yeah now you said you were like 13 when you were going and you were doing like demonstrations against the death penalty like so you know i wasn't gonna talk about some of that kind of stuff until later but like it since it started like so early in your life, like even, you know, as you mentioned, like the, your, your sort of like, um, activist stance, like came on the same time when you were discovering punk rock and stuff like that. Like, how did you, um, how did you take like the leap into that? Were, were your parents also invo involved in that kind of thing or, or like peers of yours, or was it just like, how did you find out about, you know, these kinds of things and get involved? Yeah, so the timeline there is uh, <clears throat> it was around 10 or 11 years old that I started listening to music that could be considered, you know, alternative. Um, mm -hmm. And I was exposed to um, that through two main sources. I had an older cousin um, who's uh, about five or six years older than I am who listened to a lot of punk rock and, and metal and that sort of thing. And when we would visit, um, this is while I still lived in, in Southern California, I would look at the posters and flyers on his wall and I was just enthralled by them, you know, by the, the drawings, the skulls and all these things that all seemed really dangerous and exciting. And I didn't really know what that all meant, but my cool older cousin liked it and it, it, it was, you know, it was exciting, titillating, you know, dangerous, weird, foreign, you know, all these things that are, you know, interesting, I think, when you're young, um, especially. And so those two things made me, you know, just cue in on it. And of course, he made me um, mixtapes with 
a ton of old um, punk rock on them to start to get interested in. And he made, you know, we listened to them in his room, uh, you know, at my aunt and uncle's house and, and he, you know, made me tapes and I heard, you know, seven seconds and Pillsbury hardcore and dead Kennedys and um, misfits and TSOL and gay bikers on acid and a bunch of other bands through him as a young person. So that started that ball rolling along with the fact that I had a crappy old, um, uh, clock radio that my dad had given to me, um, to have in my bedroom. And late, late at night, I used to pull that thing as far as the cord would go from the wall over into my bed and under the covers and under my pillow, I'd listen to it on the lowest possible setting where I could hear it, you know, in that little cocoon that I had made, um, <laughs> where it wouldn't wake anybody else in the house. Uh, we lived in a very small house. We're not a, a well-to-do family at all. Um, and <clears throat> I listened to KROQ, which is a, a, a very famous alternative radio station in, in the Los Angeles area. And uh, they used to play um, very, the various, ra- the various uh, programs on that radio station used to play some of the, the punk and things that I was mentioning, as well as all the sort of new wave, new romantics, you know, that were um, movement, you know, bands that were coming uh very popular in the eighties. So that's where I got my doses of the cure and Susie and the Banshees and the fall and a bunch of other great acts that I still love to this day. And the combination of those two things took me over the line. In fact, when we moved to Arizona from Southern California, I was pretty sure that the world had ended. Um, uh, as a, as a young person, that was really, um, it's quite an uprooting for me uh, to be removed from friends and family and go to this foreign land in the desert that I've never been to before and to be forced to live there. And it was all very dramatic, of course, because I was a teenager. And um, yeah, where are you going to get found your fix? A, You're, where are you going to get right, your punk rock, you know? Right. And, and who am I going to talk to about it? Where am I going to, who am I going to relate to? And, yeah. you know, all this sort of thing. So it, it felt like the world was caving in. And of course that took me even further towards this music that I found so exciting and as well as, you know, dangerous and, and, and wild, but also soothing and that it spoke to whatever was going on inside me, which I couldn't exactly put a finger on, but it was, you know, at the time it, it now, of course, I know it's it's teenage angst. We all experience this <laughs> in some way, right? Yeah. But uh, yeah, so I carried that with me. And actually that, you know, music was my best friend as I tried to, you know, get used to living in the desert. And as I made friends, um, I figured out that some of them also knew a little bit about alternative music. Um most of them were into metal, which I hadn't really gotten into yet. And so I learned from them about metal. They learned from me um, to some degree about some punk rock and hardcore and some vice versa as well. Um, also found a few who liked hip hop, which was a, a lot more rare um, at that time in my circle of friends. But uh, man, that made a huge difference and definitely 
over the next couple of years from age 13 to 15, I went through a bunch of changes, metamorphosis as far as who I thought I might be and how the world worked and how I wanted it to be um, and trying to figure out why it wasn't the way that it, it seemed like it should be. And that's what got me to looking for music that had an even more specific message. And then some of those messages brought me to try to act on my concerns. And that's where activism really started to kick in. And rather than being 13, it was um, that was a more musical time for me and the timeline for the move. But it was age 14, 15 when I started doing my first activism in animal rights. And then shortly thereafter, activism that had to do with um, with immigration, uh, with the death penalty, uh, with environmental concerns, um, you know, and a few other issues. Not to mention a few years later as the punk scene in Tucson was growing and, and we were uh, all getting old enough to maybe have vehicles to go to shows in and that sort of thing. Um, trying to stave off the big um, thrust towards white nationalism that was coming from some uh, folks in California and in Phoenix and, uh, you know, just getting into altercations with Nazi skinheads and all that kind of fun stuff too. So <laughs> yeah, cause I guess, that, I guess that was like the time, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, I think it's always been present, um, you know, in punk scenes, you know, if you, you look back in the history and you listen to various people's accounts, you know, those knuckleheads have been around for a long time. Um, Arizona certainly was, uh, you know, a, a, a popular place for them for a long time. The hammer skins were up in the Phoenix area and, um, you know, caused a lot of, uh, a lot of anguish uh, for a lot of people, lots of fights, um, lots of intimidation, uh, lots of, you know, efforts at recruitment, um, you know, pretty gross stuff. Um, and, you know, luckily, the scene, you know, that I found myself a part of, of course, never, you know, flirted with any of that nonsense and typically did a pretty good job of standing up against it. But uh, um, it hasn't left. Um, yeah, there's, you know, it's yeah, I still see it. Yeah. Yep. getting into music and everything um obviously like you know music just kind of uh, especially people who like yourself and myself like we got into it early and we're still into it like it becomes this thing in your life that's just like it's so central to your life and um like so you know you're getting into it were you immediately like 
hey, this is not just something I want to listen to. This is something I want to do. Or did that feel like out of your reach until a certain point? That's a great question. Um, I'm not sure if I can put a finger on that. I, I'm not sure if I saw myself as capable of doing anything like that um, right off the bat. Um, possibly during my freshman year of high school is when I very first got a guitar and started to play some guitar and started to play with some friends. So it was clearly a few years between when I was awakened by, um, you know, experiences with some new music. And when I finally decided like, you know, I want to try to learn how to play some of these songs and see what happens. Mm -hmm. Um, and through a series of, um, sort of non-important events, I ended up being that, I don't think I was a, a very good guitar player by any stretch of the imagination. So <laughs> this may have happened no matter what, but, uh, an opportunity to, um, sing for a band that had already had a singer, um, here in Tucson popped up and I don't know why they asked me because I really wasn't doing a lot of singing before that. But, um, I think I, I'm kind of a brash person and I'm, I'm a somewhat ego driven person. Um, hopefully a little less so in these later years than I was then, but, um, I didn't have a lot of sort of fear or issues with confidence. And that seemed to work really well for getting up in front of, you know, a bunch of, you know, punk kids at a show and, being able to, you know, holler in a microphone and, and have people respond. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah it, it, I don't know why that, that made sense to me, but it, it did. Um, and it didn't really freak me out. Like, uh, it seems to bother people to, you know, be a public figure as far as that goes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was it. I mean, I kind of, stopped playing instruments and started focusing on, you know, what kind of trouble I could make as a front person. Mm-hmm. What was the uh, first band that you were playing in? Now the first, I think like the first like band that you, you know, you can find stuff of yours online is groundwork, but like um, that wasn't your first band, was it? No, um, there were a few fun little like garage things, as I said, with some friends, you know, just trying to figure out like if we even knew what the hell we were doing, um, never really playing any shows, just uh, playing, you know, trying to figure out cover songs and that sort of thing. But, um, the, the band that had begun here in Tucson, uh, was called suspended animation and uh they did have a uh a vocalist who played a few shows with them you know house type shows and that sort of thing and then uh they made a change and brought me in and um man that was that was some of the great great moments in my young life we just had so much fun and the shows were really raucous and there were a whole bunch of different kinds of bands all around southern arizona at the time in the late 80s um they uh 
they weren't just in Tucson, but Southern Arizona, um, you know, extends all the way to the border with Mexico. And um, some of the uh, communities that are farther south um, and, and closer to that border and out on, you know, traditionally um, uh, sort of just dismissed or misunderstood or, or just completely unknown lands for most people. But down in, in places like Bisbee and Sierra Vista, I say that because, you know, there might be one person who listens to this and is like, I'm going to look that up and see where those places are. <laughs> um, but they're, they're small places with the whole Western history behind them. But, you know, even in those places that seem so out of the ordinary for some sort of a punk tale to be written, um, in fact, there were some amazing musicians and some really wild characters who came out of those scenes, and, you know, as well as uh, the, the the young scene here in Tucson. And um, I got to be a part of that, which was which was awesome. It was it was edifying and it definitely, you know, shaped, you know, who I became. And uh, um, boy, it was it was a, just a, a shit ton of fun. Yeah, I, I you know, I really like. I wish like, you, you know, I could hear like one or two of those bands that you're talking about, like, because I see, I, feel, I think it's so interesting, like, especially like times before, you know, the internet and stuff, just how like one thing could get somewhere and then, you know, like one band on a tour would play somewhere and then they'd leave like sort of that impression on this area and then the band's from that area would sort of be like, Hey, maybe we'll write a song. That's a little bit more like that, but they just had this one night, you know, or maybe one seven inch of this band to like impress upon them. And from there, it, it, what they're doing is totally unique to them and the area that they live in. So that by the time that, you know, that game of telephone, like via like, you know, songwriting gets back to Tucson where it came from or, you know, vice versa. Like each band is so individual to their own area, you know? And I really like, I really love that. I really miss that. How like, you know, you could, you could hear something that was so different and like, you'd be like, um, that band's from here or whatever. And you could sort of like, you could sort of like hear that sound in a couple of the bands from that area. And then you wouldn't hear that sound anywhere else because like they didn't have all these references like we do now. Like now a band from anywhere can sound like a band from anywhere because it's just like ubiquitous. You know, the sound is universal. Like you can literally just like hear any sound anytime you want. But like I think one thing that like, you know, I don't, I, you know, one a band that just like popped into my mind, for example, like is like Mandingo. And maybe I'm just thinking of them because they're from, they're from Phoenix or Tempe. Is that right? Do you know who I'm talking about? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so it's like, you're like, when you say, if you're like Mandingo and you're like, well, what are they like? Then you're like pop punk, you know, or like what, what's, what's what we would have called like, you know, pop punk or whatever back then. It's not, you know, what people might call pop punk now. But like, I, to me, like, I'm like, they sound like an Arizona punk band. And like, 
they sound different. Like they, I would not compare them to another band. And that's because like, you know, yeah, you could compare them to the ball weevils or whatever, but they don't really sound like the ball weevils. And like, maybe they were influenced by the ball weevils. Maybe they played together and then they were there in Arizona and they were just like, we're writing songs and it's like reflective of that area and their experiences and whatever. And it was so different. Like, I really, I don't know. I, that's why I find like, I'm still every once in a while, you know, I just dig out like some band, um, like you mentioned gay bikers on acid. I haven't thought of that band in forever. <laughs> and, it, and it's like, there's, you know, there's always those bands where you can just like, still to this day, you can accidentally find a band that had like three songs on YouTube or whatever. And you're, and they're from somewhere, you, you know, you hadn't heard of or hadn't thought of in forever. And, and it's so, it's so like for better or worse, you know, they can have this like really unique sound that like, I don't know, affects you in a totally different way. I don't know if that's what you, well, want. yeah. Picking up things that are, that are really specifically regional like that, mm-hmm. um, is a lot of fun. Um, actually mentioned, you know, being able to find something like that on YouTube or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's one of those things that we, I'm always thinking about some of the ills of um, the current day technology, you know, and media and that sort of thing. And others are all really obvious and easy to lament. Um, And the critiques are totally valid. (laughs) There are some positives. um, And that's one that I found too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's one of them I found. I've, I've gone looking for things that I had heard or experienced live or, Maybe at one time had, you know, some shitty little cassette and, uh, um, you know, that was dubbed a million times um, <laughs> that that is long since, you know, turned to dust and I can't find it or I'm trying to remember the name of a band or a song or something like that. And it's only kind of through the sort of magic, if you will, of, you know, this this media opportunity that there's at least one other person out there who who had that and thought it was worth preserving in some way, archiving in some way and, and getting it in, up on YouTube or making a little Bandcamp account or you know, making some funny post on Facebook with a picture of a bunch of people in their, you know, in their wild youth, you know, playing a show that didn't matter to anybody but the 30 or 50 or whatever people that are in that photograph in some you know, house or some dingy bar or whatever the hell it is where they were playing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it mattered to them a lot. And it clearly has influence on folks, you know, at least some folks for years to come or we wouldn't be having this conversation. Yeah. Um, yeah. I didn't, mean so, to, I didn't mean to act like I was like lamenting this, like, you know, time that's gone forever because of one specific thing. Like if you were like, if you said to me, like, you know, would you rather like, you know, would you rather this or would you rather be able to like make records with Tom Schlatter from your basement? Like, you know, I, yeah, like it's obvious <laughs> like which one I'm going to pick because, you know, I'm trying to do that. Like, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think like where, you know, where we're at, it's like and and, and the sh- like being able to share information and, and make records and and being able to share stuff that like, like you said, like I have like, I have a demo tape from 
like one of my friends' bands that like somehow still plays and they're like, I don't have a copy of that like whatsoever. Like I have a few things that like I'm like sort of like duty bound to like uh um to uh archive, you know, at some point just like um demos by bands that like went on to do like later things that are like online and stuff, but I have like demos of that that don't exist anywhere else and you know kind of like cool stuff like that but um but then yeah i you know spend all this other time doing this other stuff so get tired of being at the computer uh, but yeah <laughs> but I, I feel that same way i really do i found an old box of cassettes uh um in some things that i was looking through last year and there were you know tapes that i had made of releases that are you know, widely available to people now, but I also found cassettes that had, you know, old practice uh, recordings, you know, made on a, you know, just on a little boom box or whatever, of, mm-hmm. of you know, the old bands or um, demos from, you know, bands that were here in Tucson back then. Um, there was a great, great punk hardcore band here called Civil Order. Um, in the 80s and those were folks who were a few years older than myself and my peers um who went on to be in suspended animation and then groundwork and and that other stuff but uh um they were really influential to all of us and a a really great band amongst many others um that had existed here and uh you know, I there's I don't know how many people know of them outside of Tucson or Southern Arizona. Um, I'm not even aware that they, you know, if they played outside of this state um, ever. But that music was so important to me, and it, it does have a sound that I think kind of connects, at least in my mind, to uh, a Tucson sound and. Uh, um, and I can't wait to take that cassette at some point and try to figure out how to get it into a more um, lasting medium, uh, you know, and then yeah. possibly, you know, be able to share it with, you know, the handful of other people out there who might care that it exists. Um, that's a lot of fun. And I do think it speaks to it takes all the way back to the you know, the earlier part of our conversation, the threads, that, you know, that are connected here are these formative experiences and how they still maybe exist for me. And it very much sounds like for you as well, um, many years later in our lives and music in particular for folks, um, who are maybe built the way that we are, um, is one of those things that last even as other things come and go, um, music has really, really stuck with me. It's been, my sidekick, I guess. Um, and, uh, it's been a shoulder for me to cry on and it's been a crutch for me to lean on. And it's been, an, uh, a, a stepping stone, um, to, you know, get from one place to another, to have experiences that I might never have had with travel and with meeting people. Um, it's allowed me to, um, you know, come into my own and be that front person and sort of get out there and, and talk to the world about things that were important to me. Um, it also 
gave me a chance to absolutely get my ass sat back down more than once, you know, for being a, you know, doofus, um, with how I said things or what I was thinking or, you know, um, you know, and putting it out there in public for, for people to see, uh, which is another important part of growth. And like, I don't know how many times, you know, those opportunities would have come up the way that they did if it wasn't for music. And, um, not just being a slightly more passive, um, I guess, consumer of music, but being, you know, more heavily involved um, with music by being in bands and promoting shows and helping, you know, run a, a club for a while and doing a couple of zines and record label and, you know, all kinds of fun stuff. I mean, it's just... Uh, there's no way I could possibly point to just about anything in my current life that hasn't been touched by my musical journey, musical taste, musical exploration, musical opportunity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, um, the, everybody that I know in my life, you know, that's still like a big part of my life. Like I've met through music, you know, like uh, outside of my my own family and it and it continues to be that way with like people that i just met like or gotten closer to over the last year or whatever you know it just continues to be that way and i don't um i don't know like i mean i i could say i don't know where i'd be without like having gotten involved the way that I did, but like I, I could definitely speculate and it's not good, you know, like, yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's huge. that uh you were you were running a club for a while um how did you go like so was this just like you're playing in bands and then you're running a club um how did this how did like playing in bands to running a club go to you finally being like oh i'll also put out records yeah um well, being in bands um, led to the opportunity to um, be a part of some releases uh, before the brief stint as being part of helping bring a little DIY venue um, into existence. But uh, um, they're, they're all, I think, part of the, there's nothing special about my experience, really. I think it exists in this larger continuum that that most folks who are part of this quote-unquote underground scene really um, end up getting to experience, which is that 
that sort of do it yourself um, mindset and uh, seeing that there are opportunities to take hold and do some of these things um, and having some support systems in place with other people who would like to join you in, in those tasks doomed as many of them may be, um, <laughs> or also, um, you know, doing it because there's no fucking support system and you're just going to make it exist regardless of the fact that there's nothing there or because there's nothing there. Um, and, and you intend to create something out of, you know, sheer will. Um, and, and that's, that's, I learned that from other people and I experienced it on my own and that's pretty amazing. Um, during the groundwork, uh, years, um, an opportunity to help put out, uh, one of our records came along and it just seemed like a sensible thing to do. Like, Hey, a record label, isn't this weird sort of often the distance thing that, you know, exists in some corporate boardroom. Um, it's something that you can actually create for yourself. And, uh, I wanted to do that. Um, so I had a small role to play in releasing, um, uh, you know, one of the groundwork records and then another record or two that were, um, you know, very small Tucson based, very cool bands and people that I was, you know, friends with forever, um, getting involved in, helping put on shows and and then to help helping get a a a little diy space running um here again is born out of necessity um you know some sort of combination of necessity and desire as well as you know sort of luck and opportunity um that space didn't exist super super long um but it was it was called the candy shack um, and again, if I hadn't have been going to, um, you know, shows for years before that, where other people were making it happen right in front of me and I could see them, they were live human beings, you know, people who, you know, were tangible, <laughs> um, real folks that I could talk to, um, made it very clear that it was possible to do that again. It wasn't some, some unachievable goal that only people with certain resources or certain status or something could do. And yeah. that was a lot of fun that we had some great shows at that club. Um, really, uh, great bands over the years play there like, um, kerosene 454 and those through those and, 108 and all kinds of other great bands. So it, it was a really fun time short lived as it was, but, um, it wasn't until, you know, a bunch of years later that um, I got together uh, with my friend Bill and we decided to kind of revisit this whole record label idea. And that's, you know, how protagonist came to be. But um, early on, there were, you know, fun, uh, you know, ways of doing things. I also um, was a co-owner in a little record store here in Tucson for a short while as well. Um, and again, it was all just about, hey, like, I can do this. I, I, I've learned that I can do this. And so we're going to try and figure this out. We're just going to see if we can make it happen. And so, sure, it's cool to call Charles from Rorschach and say, hey, can you send me a bunch of the Grand Blanston releases, you know, and some of your distro stuff on consignment to help me get my record store up and running? And for him to be like, yeah, sure, I'll do that. You know, yeah. that's a pretty amazing thing. 
And then, of course, the the store fucking fell apart, and I owed him a bunch of records and money for a long time. <laughs> and so, irresponsible youth, you know, and 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 some of the pitfalls along the way. But um, man, I wouldn't trade any of those experiences. They've had so much um, to do with uh, you know who I am today, and I clearly I look back with them, um, uh, look back on them with a lot of fondness. And, um, I'm sure with some haziness of, uh, you know, of years past and, and, you know, forgetting some of the real trials and tribulations. Right. Um, but, uh, um, but those trials and tribulations, uh, still, they had a huge role to play in shaping, you know, what I f- figure out how to do things and how not to do things. And, I feel really lucky. I feel like I got a great education as a result of doing all these things. Very different than some of my peers who went to college, um, you know, went to university, um, you know, and then went straight into their chosen profession. Yeah. And those folks, you know, have a very, I'm sure, very fulfilling life and and have a lot of great stories about how they became who they are now. Um uh, but I really think um, some of the experiences I had along the way were every bit as valuable and educational. And uh, um, I bet my stories are more fun. Yeah, I mean, there's the stories where people had to get their hands a little bit dirty is always a little, you know, there's a little more to it. And not 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 that like one, not that one thing is like. I don't know. I, I'm not trying to say that one way is like more hardworking or honest or, or whatever. It's just to really put yourself into something uh, and just try to make it happen as you go is um, like you either learn like real fast or, you know, you, you think, but um, either way you did, you did learn. And um, I don't know. That's the thing that I always try to like. Uh, take away from anything that I might consider a failure is that like, you know, I absolutely did learn something from it. I hope, you know, <clears throat> um, but yeah, you, I mean, at that point, like once you've done these things, then probably by the time that you start, um, protagonist, like you have a much like better idea of what your goals are and like, how to make, you know, certain things more feasible for you. Um, so I take it that it was kind of a, a long, maybe it was sort of a long time between the record store and starting protagonist or. or oh, yes. Yeah. All the things that I'm talking about occurred in the nineties and, um, you know, and before, uh, yeah, when you're and, it, and someone from Rorschach, then I was like automatically dating yeah. it back a bit. So. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and then, you know, in the, in the two thousands, I didn't find myself very heavily connected any longer. Um, maybe at the very beginning of the two thousands, I was still, uh, playing a little bit with, um, a band called bury me standing mm-hmm. and, uh, It's very hard to like, I'll just say this off the bat in case people go looking, there is like a deathcore band or something called bury me standing now. And that's not them. But if you go to, uh, Dave Norman's blog, um, uh, what is it like, um, 
<laughs> Dave. I'm saturated sorry. brain. Yeah, I had saturated brain, but I can't remember the first part of it. But y'all know Dave Norman's blog. Anyway. I think it's can, open mind, saturated open mind, brain, if I recall. Yeah. And yeah. you can go yeah. there and the bury me standing stuff, like you can find that there. And actually, because I was most familiar with groundwork, and so I I was doing like a little bit of a dive and I was going through. And I mean why people do not talk about that stuff a hell of a lot more. I do not know why. Cause that, that stuff was incredible, especially the song where it just gets straight up fucking like pretty for like a minute. And there's just like clean singing, like out of nowhere. I was like, what the fuck? Like, and, uh, and then it just gets like wild and, you know, super heavy again, like immediately. But, um, yeah, so long story short, go to Dave's blog to listen to that, not YouTube, because you probably won't find it there, but you will find something else that I did not care for. Uh, <laughs> That's interesting. That. Yeah. You know what, Sean? I did not know that there was um, another uh, band that had chosen that name, and uh, um that's that's fascinating to it's, me. It's um, funny. There is a lyric video, and it's like – it, the lyric video is wild because it's like the way that like you you know with particular styles of screaming like they're like i mean having been in screamo bands for a long time i feel like i can understand people when they scream like really well but there's certain times of like low growls and stuff where i think a lot of the times like people are just doing it and then they're attaching lyrics to it later. This like was definitely not the case with this band. Like you can tell like what um, they're screaming, but it's really funny the way that they put the lyrics on with the screaming because like sometimes you know how you have to parse the like one word out into several screams or what. I don't know. It was just really funny the way, you know, I'm like listening to the screams and looking like, and I already knew it wasn't y'all by that point, but I was just like, it, I was like not caring for the music, but I was like invested in this, um, in what was happening to me, you know, I was <laughs> and, like, wa and, wa and watching the lyrics play out. Yeah, and, and sort of. by the way, you know what I'm going to do immediately after we hang up, of course, <laughs> you got to find it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, wow. Um, yeah, um, yeah. So that was, a, that was, that carried into, I think we, I think we played shows off and on all the way till 2000 or 2001 even, I think. And that, that was the last thing that I did where I was directly involved. And I spent um, several years, you know, sort of not really going to too many shows and, and not seeing a lot of um, I, I, what kind of took over in terms of the music at that time didn't really appeal to me. Um, uh, I, I sort of dismissively refer to it as the kind of hot topic era of hardcore. Mm. And, um, and I don't know how correct I am. And I, and I, and I recognize that it is very dismissive, but, um, but it, it really, really, I just wasn't hearing or seeing a lot that, that excited me at the time. And so, um, I really didn't do much, but, um, Bill and I had become really good friends in that time, uh, that we spent together and bury me standing and had talked off and on for a while about, um, the idea of possibly doing a label, maybe even a record label that was based on trying to, 
do what you and I were speaking about earlier, which was archive some things that we really enjoyed Mm-hmm. that we didn't think had gotten maybe the attention they deserve or that there were some inklings in the in the late 2000s of people starting to sort of um, have some nostalgia for the 90s. Um, and that, of course, has just gotten much greater as time's gone by. But, but even as early as when we started the label in 2007, there, there was certainly for the two of us, some nostalgia for 90s music and bands. Um, and there were, um, there did seem to be, you know, other folks feeling the same way. And, and we had always talked about, gosh, we would love to get some of the bands who never saw vinyl onto vinyl or, you know, get some of that stuff out into the digital, you know, uh, world once we were doing some things digitally. Um, and then, you know, see where the label went from there. Uh, there was talk about, you know, a, a groundwork reissue or an absent reissue um, just because, you know, Bill enjoyed my old bands and felt like there was room for, you know, new audiences as far as that stuff was concerned as well. So there was a lot of talk about how we would do it. And then when we, just, we decided to do it in 2007, it actually completely morphed into something else because a few of the roads we were going down towards possibly doing archival um, releases uh, just really hit dead ends of different sorts. And it turned out that we heard a few other bands um, that we really liked that were new. And particularly for me, I can't speak for Bill, um, but uh, I know that at that time, I was ripe for being inspired and excited by new music because it had been a little while since I was. Mm-hmm. And, you know, our, the very first thing we did was um, a Souvenirs Young America 12-inch um, instrumental project that uh, was really unique and amazing. Um, and then we jumped into doing the Pyramids CD and uh, the in-first-person Storm the Bastille split LP. And those those were all the results of hearing new sounds and meeting new people um, that that I and that he both felt, you know, really in love with in terms of what they were creating. And it was kind of exciting and certainly brought me back into being stoked on music. And I didn't feel like I could really contribute anymore um, on the level of being in a band. Um, But there was this sense in my mind that I could contribute by um, creating a label and maybe giving bands and people a a space, much like was done for me. I was so lucky um, to be supported by some really interesting and really cool people over the years in my old bands. and the likelihood that we would have gotten those releases out um, had it been up to us to do so rather than being supported by others, um, you know, was pretty slim. So I took that into, you know, really strong consideration. And that was a part of my motivation with the label. And, you know, lucky for me, um, I guess my taste isn't entirely horrible because we got to work with some really great people um, over the first handful of years that the label was working. And uh, man, I really, 
<laughs> I'm, I'm so lucky. And I was just thinking about this, actually, uh, as I was talking to a couple of people from bands who are uh, working with the label right now, and they're playing some of the first shows that they've played um, as a result of COVID and all the craziness. And um, I was thinking how proud I am and how excited I am to be connected to those people and have had to have the opportunity to help them share their art and their creations. Um, and that was really true of, of, you know, how I felt, you know, early with the label as well. So, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. I, I, I think like, you know, um, you, you, you described like a time where you were, where you felt like you weren't finding things that were inspiring you. And it was like, it, there was a really weird time for me as well, where it was like, I, I felt like there was this like dry spell for things that I wanted to hear or whatever. But then like what happened with me was like later I would end up playing like playing shows with bands that I was into at the time. And I'd find out about a band they were in during that part where I wasn't hearing new things. And like, so I love that band now, you know, or whatever. And it was like, <clears throat> it was this thing where it's like, there wasn't um, necessarily like, there wasn't a lack of this stuff. It was just like, it was a time before like band camp or, you know, just like right before like, stuff was really getting put on YouTube, like as far as like music, you know, goes and stuff um, <clears throat> where I just, I wasn't playing shows. So I wasn't like connecting with the same people. And so it was until I started playing shows again that I'm like, Oh, there was like really cool bands, like right around there. I just like, I wasn't seeing, you know, I wasn't seeing bands from Texas or I wasn't seeing bands from California. Like, come through Indiana or, or whatnot. I was just like missing it. And, um, yeah, I don't know. It's like, it's, it, it's just, it's really awesome how like, um, vibrant and connected like music scenes have been and, and continue to be, um, and how connected they are, um, even more so, you know, by like, you know, um, internet social groups and, and whatnot like now. And so it's just like, yeah, I mean, like you, you know, you'll work with like y'all worked with like said non Satyata and it's like, you know, I don't know if you ever saw them the couple times they came through the States or whatever, but it's like the, some of the bands that I've worked with, like I never would have worked with them. Like if it wasn't for, you know, like the internet and stuff. Um, so I don't know. It's really, it's really wild and it's, I don't know, I, you know, it's, it's a really cool time to like be doing a label and stuff. But at the same time, do you think that like, have you ever thought, well, things like Bandcamp and stuff like that make what a label does less necessary than ever? Uh, yes, I, I, yeah. I have to answer one thing that you said, which is that, um, yes, in fact, I had the distinct pleasure and pure enjoyment of um, seeing uh, Sednan Sashiata play uh, a few That's times. 
Um, and uh, they are amazing human beings, incredible artists. Um, I dearly wish they would have continued and made more music. Um, but I'm so, so, so thankful that I got to be a part of a couple of releases with them and um, three, in fact. Um, and they, uh, yeah, definitely a highlight. Um, and I just, uh, yeah, so I have to throw that out there. <laughs> yeah, um, sure. And to tie it into the question you're asking now, um, I think that uh, I would answer that question um, from two perspectives. One, I think hands down, it's absolutely true that labels per se in the way that we understand them from decades prior to 2010, let's say, mm-hmm. um, and on aren't entirely necessary. They, they really aren't. Um, and I say that as somebody who quote unquote does a label and has done a label, mm-hmm. um, but I don't think they're necessary. And I, and I think a lot of bands, um, who wait for that type of validation, um, or that kind of support are probably doing themselves a disservice when there's so many opportunities now, technologically speaking, anyhow, um, for them to get what they're doing out there for anybody who wants to see it or hear it. Um, so I do think that um, the label, uh, the role that a, a record label plays, um, it has been changed greatly. Um, and I don't think that it's entirely necessary. That being said, if it weren't for, um, I think, folks who take whatever resources or skills or just straight raw desire that they have and say, I want to put these things together, my love of music, maybe my connection with a certain band or a certain scene, or even just what I'm doing myself as an artist. Um, and I want to put it out there. Um, and I want to do it in a way that has some type of collective connection. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want it to be connected to what other artists are doing as well. Um, or I want to benefit from how that, uh, label that moniker, um, maybe it's a different individual, maybe it's the same individual, um, is how they're projecting themselves also as a, as a creative outlet. And I, I, maybe that's the thing. I, um, I don't, I don't know that there's anything that I can really provide for somebody who's hyper motivated that they couldn't figure out how to provide for themselves. Um, you know, as a, as a smaller DIY label, um, Yes, I've been working with my distributor for a long time and they're great and maybe they wouldn't have access to that. So, okay, I get it. Um, Maybe there's some name recognition for the label that they wouldn't have if they went out on their own. So I guess there's that. These are obvious things, but there are so many examples of why that's not entirely necessary and and bands and artists that have made a huge success of themselves. or even just accomplished whatever goal they have in terms of putting their creation out there for the world to see um, without 
the assistance of anybody other than themselves, you know, as an individual or as a small group of people creating their art. So uh, the role that the label plays today is hard for me to define for anybody else. Um, What I can say is that what I bring is the two things that I just mentioned, I guess, some decent distribution through Death Wish and uh, um, uh, maybe a, a, f- a fragment of label recognition. Um, what I think some of the folks that I work with um, get out of connecting with me, or at least I hope, is some of what I've been you know, betraying to you today, which is my continually childlike um, you know, uh, fascination with and love of, um, and just adoration really of, of all things music. And, and even though I go through phases and changes and, and my interests are always, um, developing, uh, and even with that short period of time before protagonist started being in a, a somewhat different musical mindset, um, it's it's never changed. I was just listening to some different music at that time and listening to a lot of music that I had loved from decades past. Um, but the uh, the music that I I connect with these days, while still broad in scope um, and range, I guess, is still just people inspiring me because they wrote something really catchy or because there's somebody that I really have affection and respect for and would support anything that they created um, as a result of just trying to, to, to connect with them and to be supportive of them and, and provide any conduit that they might not have otherwise, you know, for their creation to be brought to light. Um, You know, you mentioned Tom earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, what a great example, right? And I, I hate to embarrass him, and I'm sure he will be by being mentioned, and you and I both know him well enough to know that's true. But, um, but I mean, I think he's a, a great example of that. I think he leaves a, a really lasting impression on people that he meets. I think his talent is is clear. Um, and if you get to know this person, um, you want to be connected to him. You want to be a part of what he's doing. You want to share in that energy, that vitality, that creativity. Um, and so protagonist will always be a vessel for something that he's working on if he ever chooses it to be so, you know, and I've been really lucky to make that true with a lot of people that I've, um, become friendly with over time, as well as make it possible for me to connect with people that I might never have a chance to meet. Otherwise, as you said earlier, Mm -hmm. doing projects uh, across long distances, it's incredible how technology makes that possible and how taking that technology and utilizing it in the form of a label can make that, you know, possible and, and make certain things come to fruition in concrete ways that might not have otherwise. And that was my conversation with Brendan Day Smith. Thank you so much, Brendan, for taking the time to chat with me. Thanks to all of you at home listening as well. Up next, episode 100. And wow, I can't believe I've done this a hundred times. We'll have guest host Kai Van Vlack on to ask me questions. Until then, take care and do good things.